welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg. And we have a special guest today. A very special guest. By his own admission, a funny-looking white guy. We have uh, Sensei Joe Swift with us. Welcome, Joe. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. No problem. It did take a while to, to get you. the timing set up, but uh, and we got there. A in special the shout out, uh, thanks to James for uh, putting us together. Absolutely, yeah. James Hatch. Yes. Thank you, James Hatch, for that. Yeah, he's hooked us up with uh, with Patrick McCarthy and you as well. So he's been very helpful oh, to us. Yeah, yeah, Great. yeah, yeah. And uh, and a delightful chap as well. Always a good guest to have on. And um, but uh, you know we've we've already been looking at this morning the uh, the first hand grenade date. Yes, we? <laughs> <laughs> inspired by James's comments. Inspired by James, we've we've been looking um, at the histories of hand grenades. Yes, we have. So thank you, Joe, for inspiring us to look at that. Yes, no now problem. I, yeah. I feel better informed already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so I, I, I thought, because it's our podcast, Sue, not about what the listeners want, it's about what we want. <laughs> I th- I That's thought, the spirit, Greg. <laughs> I thought, as we've got Joe with us, who's recently written a book on uh, Itosu Anko, that we could talk about uh, him, his, his uh, some karate myths and legends about him, uh, and see where it takes us. Um, so I don't, I don't know if yeah. you want to talk about a little bit about the book, Joe, first, to maybe people that don't know. Right. Uh, I'm not sure called... most people do, but... Okay, sure. Uh, judging by the sales, it doesn't seem like it, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, but uh, as long as at least one person reads it, then, right, you're happy. Yeah, there you go, exactly. Uh, it's called uh, Itosu Anko, Savior of a Cultural Heritage. And being American, I spelled savior without a U. And oh, I've, okay. take, I've gotten a couple of jokes about that uh, from some of my uh, uh, non-American friends. Um, but, uh, controversial. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably the most controversial thing in it. No. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, it's available on Amazon uh, in paperback version. Uh, that's probably the most accessible. Uh, but it's published through Lulu uh, Publications, uh, whose distribution network is not the best to some countries. So uh, I also have it distributed by Amazon. So. Yep. Everyone, uh, everyone got and published buy it. in uh, 2019 or was it 2018? Anyway, uh, within the past couple of years. Mm. It started out, uh, full disclosure, it started out uh, about 20 years ago uh, oh, wow, as, okay. an, as an outline of a two page article for the Journal of Asian Martial Arts. Okay. Uh, that I was thinking about, and it just expanded into a 300 page book. Oh, well. You get more information, need to double check, cross check things, and yeah, then put it all together. So, yeah, yeah, he's definitely and, uh, uh, he's one of the most interesting historical figures for me, I think. Yeah, um, uh, well, he did, uh, he was one of the pair of uh, major influences on Funakoshi Sensei. So, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that book is out. Uh, uh, just to plug another book. Uh, by a gentleman named Thomas Feldman, who is writing a biography of Yotosu. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, but more of like a, a biography, not a... Uh, mine focuses more on the karate part. Mm-hmm. This is going to focus more on the, the biography and the times of the man. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, so uh, he's done a lot of research. He's 
he's like me. He keeps getting new stuff and has to revamp and, and change everything. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yep, he's been uh, uh, working on that for a few years. Uh, apparently, when uh, my book came out, he kind of put his on hold until he read it. Uh, and then mm. when he read it, he said, okay, it's a different book from mine. So then he, I'm glad that he restarted it. Mm. That's interesting. That'll be a good pair to have together. Mm. Yeah. Um, Joe, I, I don't know if you'd mind, but um, I know that Greg knows all about Itosu. But for people like me who are, are learning this currently, could you give us mm-hmm. um, a little potted history of him before we yeah. go further and deeper into the legends? Would that be okay? Sure. Uh, Itosu Anko was a, for lack of a better word, an Okinawan samurai, even though they didn't call them that. Uh, so he's part of the gentry, uh, born in Shuri. Uh, which was where the royal castle was. Uh, they say he studied karate under several people, uh, Nagahama from Naha, and Gusukuma or Shiroma from Tomari, and the legendary Bushi Matsumura from Shuri. Uh, but he was actually in his younger years like probably more known for his work in the royal government as a scribe. So he went through the... Uh, all of the rigmarole to become a, a officially appointed a court scribe. So he had to study the Chinese classics. He had to speak and read fluent Japanese, well, Japanese of that era, and Chinese, uh, and be able to uh, uh, you know, write down everything that happened in the court. I don't know if we've ever found anything that he actually wrote, because being a court scribe, you wouldn't really sign your name to it. Mm. Uh, it was just your job. You know, there were a bunch of you. Uh, but uh, on the karate side, he was probably most known for bringing karate into the public domain uh, in 1905 when he presented it as a sort of a physical education subject within the official school system. Uh, so that started in 1905. They probably started the process several years before. Uh, but uh, so he's most known for that. Uh, and being one of the uh, teachers of Funakoshi Gichin, uh, you know, founder of Shotokan, and one of the teachers of Mabuni Kenwa, the founder of Shitoryu. And he has also has a lot of students from Okinawa who uh, left their mark in uh, the islands as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, died in 1915 uh, as a not very wealthy man. And uh, in 1915, there was a series of newspaper articles published based on what seems to be an interview with one of his top students, a guy named Yabu Kensu. Oh, and really? Yabu, yeah, Yabu was, uh, uh, I think he made lieutenant uh, or lieutenant in the mm. uh, army, but they called him the sergeant because that was just easier to say. They called him Sergeant it, Yabu. I've heard, going off a little bit, I've heard that's where a lot yeah. of the militaristic kind of line work comes from from him. I don't know how true that is, but... Uh, well, he was one of the 10, about 10, of 50 uh, volunteers who passed the physical exams to go into the Japanese military mm. uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, him and Hanashiro Chomo, you may have mm-hmm. heard of him, mm-hmm. and another guy named Kudeken Kenyu. Uh, you don't hear too much about him. He didn't leave his mark in the karate world like the other mm. two did. But... Uh, I think that when they came back, uh, they were hired by the schools to teach military drilling. 
And of course, they were also karate exponents, so they were teaching the karate classes as well mm. uh, as the assistants of Itosu uh, within the, the middle school and the teacher's college. And uh, I do think that uh, just going from what I've read and you, you hear through the line that it was Hanashiro and Yabu who brought in the militaristic drilling, uh, the, mm. the kihon up and down the floor, yeah, that kind of thing, that everybody wants to blame on Funakoshi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, uh, as early as 1911, when Itosu was still alive, actually, uh, there's a newspaper article that records a competitive karate matches under oh, wow. the guidance of Yabu. So there's another thing you can check off from being blamed on Shorokan. Mm. They were doing it, you know, <laughs> in Okinawa already. Mm. Uh, as a as a, an aspect of uh, the modern version of the art, yeah, and it would that's... be so interesting to see what that might have looked like that that kind of competitive match and compare it to today's. Yeah, just yeah, well, it would be judging by a couple of photos from the nineteen twenties. Let me see, I'll pull one up here of. I'm not sure if you can see that. Here's one of Yabu. Showing Just a technique on a quite, student, and the student, blurry. okay, yeah. Uh, well, the student's wearing a chest protector and oh, a I have helmet. seen that picture actually. Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they were probably already experimenting with the bogu by that time. The uh, the armor. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a yeah. picture of Mabuni Kemwa wearing. Yes, uh, that anything. was actually uh, like twenty some odd years later. Oh wow! Okay. Oh, so this yeah. was really early. Yeah, 1911 is the first instance I found of where they... Okay, what happened, the article is about uh, the the yearly recital of the karate class uh, from one of the schools. And they invited, you know, the the press, the local press. They invited, you know, the school officials and all of that to come watch. And within there is described as uh, there were two karate matches uh, held in addition to some kata performances and some sumo matches. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, can't blame everything on the mainland Japanese anymore, guys. Sorry. No. <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll some things uh, we still can. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Some like things we can. The, the bad fitting uniforms and all of that. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're only bad fitting if you have more of a Western physique. I think. I don't know. I've seen some. Uh, they have different cuts, don't they? The Kumite cut, I think, yeah. looks horrendous. Yeah. So baggy and yeah, it just doesn't look yeah. right to me. And then you have the Whatever. full contact guys who tear their sleeves off. Yeah, well, <laughs> like they don't tear them off, but they they like they like they have them specially made with short sleeves or no sleeves. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Well, never uh, mind. We, we won't probably, get into another discussion about yeah. geese. <laughs> Different types of geese. We've yeah. been there. We've, we've just, I've just bought a black <laughs> gee, which was a big step for me. Yeah. But I've got go. one actually the color of denim. Oh, wow. But, but it's not actually made from denim. Uh, it's just dyed using an old uh, Japanese dyeing technique called aizome, where they take uh, like blue dye from a flower, and then you dye white cloth with it. And it's used in a lot of like the ancient kimono uh, traditions oh, wow. and all of that. 
when I got my Shihan license, my teacher had that specially made for me and he gave it to me. He said, here, have this thing. Oh. See, that's a, yeah, that's a, a gear I could get behind. That has meaning yeah. to it. I like that. So, uh, and uh, the place where my teacher has his dojo, where I lived for uh, several years in the past, is a town called Kanazawa. Mm-hmm. In Kanazawa, they call it the second Kyoto. Because uh, when Tokugawa Ieyasu uh, unified Japan into like one nation in 1600, well, actually officially 1603, uh, the lord of Kaga province, where Kanazawa is, uh, because he was a relative of Tokugawa. Uh, basically, what he did is he, uh, in order to show that he wasn't going to rise up uh, with all of his military might, being one of the richest provinces in the entire nation, he poured a lot of money into the arts. So he hired a lot of artisans to come from Kyoto. Uh, you know, like gold leaf artisans, lacquer artisans, you know, uh, kimono makers and all that. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, kimono uh, makers, did you say? Yeah. All right. Uh, sorry, cat was running on some plastic bags in the back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so uh, Kanazawa is next to Kyoto, one of the most artistic places in Japan. And it's also one of the few, uh, also including uh, Kyoto, that didn't get bombed in World War II because of that cultural heritage. Mm. Yeah. And so he he's friends with a lot of like local artisans. So he... Uh, paid one of them to dye a dogi uh, using the Aizome technique. That's really cool. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah, you probably paid nice. more than I did for the for the, uh, the grading, uh, just for oh, the dogi. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a, see, that I like that. That's a nice sentiment behind the gi. It's not just, you know. Yeah. yeah I like yeah. that. For that for, uh, you know, formal events and demonstrations and all that. But, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I can't imagine it's a it's a day to day wearer. No. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think we got a little bit off of Itosu, but uh... that's right. That's what we do. Yeah. We go <laughs> we go off on tangents. Yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking speaking, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because I, I've read an article over and over and over again by you mm-hmm. over the years about the the lost kata of Itosu, the the Chanan forms. Yeah. And it's one of those subjects that you see crop up over and over again and the information i always see is essentially your article repeated by different people <laughs> because no <laughs> because no one seemed to figure out anything else about it so i don't know if you wanted to because the hands i don't know if you've heard we've said it before the, the or the pinans yeah. those set of kata are kind of my go-to kata yeah so i've always been quite interested in the history of them so i don't know if you wanted to if maybe conf- not confirm or deny but go into the legend of of those and how true that kind of Chanan legend might be. Well, the legend is that uh, Itosu learned them from a Chinese guy. Yeah. Uh, near the uh, Buddhist temple in Tomari. Right. Uh, that's a legend. Mm. If you actually look at the structure of the kata, you can see parts of Kusanku, uh, Kanku yeah. Dai, yeah. Uh, Gankaku, uh, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, uh, you know, Gion, a little bit of Gion in there. Yeah. Uh, although highly stylized and simplified. Uh, but uh, now, as far as the Chinese origin legend, I don't know because I've never seen any convincing evidence to uh, the legend. 
other than yeah. the guy may have been from a part of China called Chanan, mm. which literally means south of the Yellow River. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anywhere south of the Yellow River. Yeah, <laughs> guy from <laughs> south of the Yellow River. Which is like essentially half of China. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, uh, that is the legend. Uh, the really the only uh, written evidence that we have of Chan'an uh, by somebody who was there is uh, from Motobu Choki, mm. who in an interview in a 1934 uh, book by Nakasone Genwa, uh, we can get into him later if you want to, he's a, mm. he's a staunch supporter of karate in the 1930s, then all of a sudden he turned communist. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's part of the the communist movement in Japan after the war and all that. But, uh, oh, wow. Or the socialist, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, where Motobu said uh, he went to visit Itosu one day, and Itosu told his students to do a kata. And, you know, Motobu said to Itosu, hey, I learned a kata from you that kind of looked like that, but it was called Chanan. You know, what's going on here? And Itosu mm. said, well, I changed it, and I renamed it. Uh, it yeah. doesn't go into the origins of Chanan, just that the kata that became the hands was originally called Chanan. And that's really all we have. Yeah. I mean, I've always personally took it as they were kind of the prototype pinans. Because, the, yeah. I mean, the three names, Chanan, Pinan, and Heian, they're all yeah. fairly similar. So yeah. whether, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I've also read, you know, that, 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 um, I can't remember the name of the guy. I had a cutter in his system that apparently looked the same. And oh yeah, um, uh, Motobu Motobu Ryu Karate, uh, oh, headed by Motobu, okay. Motobu Choki's son, has a kata that they call uh, Shirokuma or Shirakuma, which okay. literally means white bear or polar bear. Oh well, right, not too many polar bears in Japan, so I'm not sure where that name yeah. came from. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but it basically looks like uh, Heian Nidan with middle blocks instead of low blocks. Or Hannah okay. Shodan, Pina Nida. Yeah. Uh, there's a book published in Japan uh, that I used to have until somebody else wanted it. So I said, here, I'm done with it anyway. Uh, that was one by one of the Motobudu guys, and it shows uh, this kata in the book. And I was like, and it's just, you know, looks like, you know, Taikyoku Shodan or, mm. or Pina Nidan with middle blocks instead of low blocks. So it was nothing, nothing to see her move along, folks, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but what was interesting is that it did look like Pinyan Nidan or Heian Shodan, right? Mm -hmm. And not the others. And that uh, Pinyan Nidan or Heian Shodan is kind of an outlier, I guess, in terms of structure of the kata. In that yeah. it doesn't look like it has bits and pieces from the older kata in it, right? Yeah. It just looks like, I mean, Who's to say that the original Chan'an wasn't the the uh, uh, the prototype of Pinyan Nida? Yeah, I have I yeah. have heard because it's this is another thing I've heard, and we can maybe get into this as well. I won't say who I've heard it from, but that uh, Itosu was tasked with uh, creating these kata, but something about the, the class structure in Japan prevented him from doing so. So he went to Nabe Matsumura, 
mm-hmm. and asked him to create a kata, and he created what's now known as Heian Shoyan or Pinan Nidan, which to me sounds a bit of a convoluted story. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Yeah, it does um, sound a bit convoluted, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, because Nabe Masumura is supposedly uh, Bushi Masumura's grandson, right? Yeah, or, or son, or grandson, or or yeah. nephew, or whatever it was. Uh, but if you look at the class structure uh, in Okinawa, the Masumura family was a Chikudon Peiching, mm-hmm. which is the lower level of the Peiching classes, and the Itosa family was one higher than him. So, yeah, yeah. So we can I'm we can sure. rule that out. Yeah. Uh, Myth number one yeah, could be could be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of course, everybody wants to lay claim to the most famous kata, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't know if that's a myth or uh, because if you bring uh, Nabe Matsumura into it, you kind of know what style is saying it. The only yeah. style that claims that he existed. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, another thing, actually, which there, there's not a lot of evidence to support he was actually around. Yeah. I guess, other than people from that so that, that group. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we don't know. Uh, the only uh, likeness we have of him is a, a charcoal drawing mm. or a pencil drawing right so there's no photograph of him uh he does not appear unless he, nabe uh was a nickname and not his actual name yeah. i haven't seen him appear in the genealogies as far as i know not masimura's son's name was toraju mm. uh and it might be him uh just nicknamed nabe but there's something interesting in the okinawan uh, naming uh, traditions, I said, we'll say, nabe or nabi, nabi in Okinawa, nabe in Japanese means mm. a pot, like a cooking pot. Right. And it's and it's uh, and it is uh, just just because it is what it is. Uh, modern sensibilities notwithstanding, a woman's name. Ah. Along okay. with kama, uh, there's also a name kama, which also means like a bigger cooking pot mm. like that you boil your your family's uh daily rice in uh that's also a woman's name so there's I'm yeah not sure yeah and so there's 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 a little bit of uh uh interesting tidbits here and there that kind of make you think about the the nave matsumura uh legend yeah i mean who knows it might be completely true yeah uh, but, i mean i guess yeah. you know that 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 style must come from somewhere but when you look at it, it's not drastically different from a lot of other shoring-based systems. Right. Uh, so. Well, they've got, in the original curriculum published in 1972 uh, by the Uechiryu uh, Association that came out with like a 1,500-page a book mm. uh, on Uechiryu forms and, you know, history. And then they did like the profiles of all of the prominent teachers uh, on Okinawa at that time. Yeah. And in 1972, uh, they had Pinan, Shodan, and Nidan mm. uh, in their curriculum. They had Nayanji, Shodan, and Nidan in their curriculum. And they had Chinto, which is usually associated with Itosu and the Tomari guys, mm. not necessarily the Shuri guys uh, so much. Uh, and they had Kusanku, they mentioned Sanchin and Seisan, but I don't know if they if they got rid of them after that because they don't have them now. Uh, and then the one that I really have a problem with, the Hakutsuru. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a problem with it because it sounds like uh, an attempt to cash in on the more recent introduction of white grain into yeah. Okinawa in yeah. the late 1800s and the early 1900s than it does with the bodyguard of the king needing uh, an empty hand martial art that would allow him to take the initiative and take down the bad guy before he moves. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, a funny one. The, the Hakatsuri ones are... Yeah. yeah, there's so many variants of them. And... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, of course, we do know that uh, Goju and Weichi are based somewhat on some of the crane principles of southern China. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're they're crane kung fu. Mm. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, so, yeah, having a problem with may be, be, be the most uh, diplomatic thing to say, but uh, I have uh, problems with the history of the form itself. Mm. I technically, it's very beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's very nice. I mean, what yeah. so so? What is the kind of accepted history of the form for people that maybe don't know? Uh, that it was passed on directly from Masamura to his uh, to Nabe to Soken. Okay. Yeah. Now that yeah, that's the accepted history within that particular uh, lineage of Shorin Du. And the re- and the and reason course, it's not practiced outside is because it's a family. Yeah, it's form. the family. Form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in the 1920s, I think it was, you had a guy named Go Kenki come to Okinawa. Yeah. A Chinese tea merchant from uh, Fuchen. And he happened to be a white crane kung fu guy. And he became friends with a lot of the uh, guys active at that time. So guys like Miyagi Chojun and Mabuni Kenwa and Kyoda Juhatsu mm-hmm. uh, all learned from him. Uh, Mabuni and Kyoda retained one of his forms, uh, Nipaipo or Nepai. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Miyagi just kept some of the precepts of Crane Kung Fu and didn't keep the forms themselves. But uh, yeah, so he is a highly influential on the modern development of the other side of karate than the Shodin side, right? Uh, in the 1920s, 30s, and up into the 40s. Mm. Yeah. So, I don't know uh, if there was a connection between uh, Gokenki and Soken, because it's never talked about. Uh, no. May have been, may not have been, but uh... yeah, that that's. I mean, Soken is a is an interesting character. Yeah. In the in the history. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we can get into that or not, but it's um, uh, we, I, we're talking I, about controversy. We might. Yeah. <laughs> we... <laughs> Well, well, I look at this. I do think that he was one of the last generation, yeah, for who sure. Who could actually, who could actually uh, move in the specific manner that karate required you to move? Yeah. Uh, based uh, him and Shimabukuro Tatsuo, the founder mm-hmm. of Ishindu. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find their the video record of these two to be such outliers amongst the video record of all of the other karate guys of that era, in terms of the quality of their movement. Mm. Uh, that uh, they might have had something, uh, but were not able to pass it on as teachers. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, so in that regard, I I differentiate between the karate of these guys and the style of karate that they passed on. Mm. Because they're yeah. not always the same, if you look yeah. at the video performances. 
and you know listen to the guys actually studied with them about what they could actually do versus what they were having their students do mm. so yeah yeah i mean th those videos of, of soken doing Qatar are some of my favorite to yeah. go back and watch just the little kind of intricate details you see that he puts into the movement somewhere that, that yeah coming from a shotgun background looking at the same kata that we do that don't have mm -hmm. those movements in is yes. interesting to compare and yeah. yeah well those yeah. movements may have been filtered out by itosu not to bring it yeah back yeah that. yeah exactly or so or or added in by soken yeah 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 that could be so go, with Itoshi, so obviously the rumor is that he did make adjustments to Kata or that he created the Pinan, Chanan, Heian, whatever you want to call them, for specifically for the school systems. Yeah. What, what, what do you think is more likely? I mean, do, when did you say that the, the, the Chanan was being practiced or the Pinans? Do you think they were created specifically for schools? I think that they were created specifically by Itosu for kind of passing on karate in whatever mm. form he could to mm. whoever wanted to learn. And they happened to coincide with the school uh, curriculum. Yeah. In one, one respect. Uh, there's something interesting that I found uh, reading an article from 1908 uh, that isn't talked about anywhere else except in that particular newspaper article. But the karate classes in the, in the middle school uh, the teachers' college, they didn't talk about it, but in the middle school, was for second-year students, mm -hmm. like, once a week. Right. That was it. So it wasn't, like, every day for nine hours you're training karate yeah. at school, right? It's it's your gym class. Yeah. And one day you might be doing cricket, the next year you're doing karate, right? Uh, but And it was really relegated to second-year students, and then upperclassmen could join if they wanted Hmm. So that was a, yeah, I suppose whoa, when you okay. think of when yeah. you think of um, karate in the school system, you kind of you get this picture of it's this yeah. big thing that they're practicing all the time, getting amazingly good at. Yeah. But yeah, that's but, interesting. Uh, yeah, it was just part of gym class. Hmm. So uh, I guess it would make sense for those kata to, for 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 a to create simpler kata to get done in an yeah. hour a week or something. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as far as the the actual physical changes uh, that happened to karate around that time period. Mm. Of course, some of them, uh, we have uh, testimony from the guys who are around that time. Itosu changed some things deliberately. Like you can't teach, you know, in the school systems how to poke somebody in the eyeballs and kick them in the groin, right? Mm. Antisocial behavior is called, I believe, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you can teach them uh, rudimentary kata with big motions to mm. get the blood flowing, develop the musculature in the, the ligaments, a couple of prearranged sparring moves, right? And that's enough. Uh, and so to that regard, a lot of the kicks seem to have been raised to higher levels than mm. the, the old kicks. And a lot of the, the techniques to the, the head area were moved down to the chest area. Uh, so I think those changes we can uh, kind of agree that were deliberate, mm. uh, as well as the, uh, according to one uh, historian and practitioner, Kinjo Hiroshi, mm -hmm. uh, 
he uh, his research showed that uh, they eliminated the practice of sanchin uh, because it was detrimental to the uh, growth of the youth that were practicing. Uh, because I would imagine okay. that whoever was teaching Sanchin back then was teaching it in what would be considered an incorrect manner. Yeah. Gojuryu, yeah. Punched over in the chest clothes and everything. Yeah. But uh, uh, I think that uh, the other half of the story that doesn't get talked about enough, uh, probably just because people don't think about it, is the changes that happened uh, in Japan and Okinawa, of course. Uh, since the Meiji Restoration, with the abolishment of the class system and the introduction of Western-style exercise and sport into the nation it, through the school system and the military training, mm. uh, fundamentally changed how people moved compared to how they would have been moving in the Edo era when they're wearing the Japanese clothes that does yeah. not allow you to torque and twist your body against itself. Yeah. And you have two heavy swords in your belt, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you're wearing uh, wooden clogs or, uh, you know, grass uh, slippers rather than closed-toe shoes. Mm. Uh, so a lot of these things, uh, I think, can be chalked up to, uh, or a lot of the changes that... that uh, most of the elders may have been lamenting were chalked up to this aspect rather than just closing a nukita into a fist and raising yeah. a kick to the chest level. Because to be honest, that's not really changing the kata all that much. Mm. One of the, the little quirks, I don't know how, if this is true or not, the, the reason uh, in like uh, Kushanku or Kankudai, we have, where you come back to the hip in the cup and saucer position, we actually come under the arm before you mm -hmm. do the, the tate shute, which I've heard people say is because they were pulling up a sleeve. Which, how true that is, I don't know. But because the sleeves were so long, coming underneath the arm pulls the sleeve mm -hmm. out of the way so they can then extend and pull back. But yeah, yeah you, I, I guess James was yeah. saying, um, understanding the, the, the environment and the culture at that time does kind of change the way you look yeah. at the way they would do things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one, one uh, specific example we can talk about is the reverse punch as it's practiced in modern Shotokan as invented by Nakayama Sensei mm -hmm. versus how it was practiced uh, in the old Shorinryu if you look at like Soken and Shimabuku mm. uh, how they were doing their punches uh, especially the, the rear hand punch the reverse yeah. punch uh, you know that famous diagram in Nakayama's dynamic karate where the body is seen as like a piston engine yeah, and and it's showing your your upper torso is rotating around an axis. Yeah, uh, that type of movement would not be very uh, convenient if you're wearing Japanese style clothes. No. Uh, right. So uh, things like this. Uh, he was looking at it, trying to uh, Nakayama Sensei. Right. Was seems to have been looking at it. Uh, trying to give a scientific explanation to karate movements, but mm. I don't think he understood the human body uh, no. as well as he does as he understood machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we can say, well, like we, we've had this discussion before, and we see that, that that kind of idea of twisting on a central axis—it's just not how the body works for developing power. Like it's yeah. all about kind of mass moving forward. And like I think when you said you when you look at the older versions of 
people, but you do see their body moving in that kind of manner. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, even the, the normal punch, you're standing in natural stance and you just do your mm. punches back and forth. Uh, a lot of modern uh, karate schools will have the shoulders going out and back and forth and back and forth like this, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you are looking at it from the point of view of uh, transfer of kinetic energy, mm -hmm. uh, with half of your body moving forward, but the other half of your body moving backwards, you're sending half of your energy backwards. the other way. Yeah. Instead of into the opponent yeah. uh, where it needs to be. Uh, so I think that uh, the, the change in lifestyle uh, circumstances you no longer had a class of people who were deliberately trained to move in a specific way and everything mm. they did was about that. Mm. And I'm talking about things like how you sit down, how you stand back up, how you walk down the street, uh, your non-martial uh, endeavors like the tea ceremony and, and uh, even no dancing, like no theater. Mm -hmm. uh, people notice that no theater was actually uh, in Japan uh, until the major restoration, only uh, part and parcel of the samurai class. If you were not a samurai class, you couldn't learn no, you couldn't go watch it. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you look at the movement patterns of no, and then you compare them to the movement patterns of the Koryu Japanese martial arts, like sword and all of that, mm -hmm. you can see that they're almost the exact same. You know, one mm -hmm. is exaggerated for entertainment. The other is exaggerated for, for you know, cutting a person in half with a three-foot razor blade. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, they, the yeah. movement pattern itself seems to have been part and parcel of how uh, this, the samurai class or in Okinawa, the Peijing classes and above, were raised from a young age. Mm -hmm. uh, so you get rid of that. And you start introducing uh, Prussian military exercises, marching, mm -hmm. running, and all of a sudden you now have a, a new generation of people who are no longer wearing uh, Japanese clothes. They're wearing more Western-style clothes, and they're starting to walk in a manner that was diametrically opposite of the generation before, meaning I uh, think how we walk or how people walk in daily life. When your left foot goes forward, mm -hmm. your right hand goes forward and vice versa, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at what's happening to the torso, it's kind of creating this twisting motion. Yeah. And where you're trying to go forward with one side of your body, uh, with, with, what is it, with your left foot, and your right hand goes forward, but your left hand goes backwards, Mm -hmm. Your left, the left side of your upper body is actually preventing your foot from going as far as it could. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I wish I could like stand up and actually do it, but uh, no, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> for anyone at home, just just go and walk around the living room where you wherever you're listening to this to, unless you're in the car, don't do that. But <laughs> go and do Joe's experiment, and you'll see. Yeah, it's uh, uh, so. I think things like these uh, were another major factor in why karate changed into something other than it used to be mm. as far as movement quality. Yeah, I've never now, thought of course, about that, that before, but it makes a lot of sense. It, it doesn't, in one respect, it doesn't really uh, affect the physical 
like the application practices and all of that. No, yeah. Uh, but uh, if you're looking for a how to move your body in the most efficient manner to get into those application practices, then I think that looking at the older uh, martial movement principles, for lack of a better word, uh, would do everybody a world of good. Mm. Because once you're in that engagement distance and you need to, for example, put all of your energy into one punch and you don't have room to do like the big boxing swings and all that, how do you get all of your energy moving forward into the punch mm. rather than half of it going behind you yeah. when you try to turn? Uh, so this kind of thing, uh, it doesn't, you know, you know, the judo throws and the, the Aikido wrist locks and all of that that people are uh, adding into karate these days. Uh, this this movement and walking and, and how you conduct yourself in daily life doesn't really have much of a bearing on your interpretation of the moves. But mm. I think it has a bearing on how well you can perform those moves in the cultural martial context of karate. Yeah. Not yeah. like modern Krav Maga self-defense and all of that, mm. uh, which is all well and fine. Uh, but, okay, before we go on for full disclosure, uh, my interest in karate is to uh, revive its martial culture mm -hmm. from the uh, perspective of the Ryukyu Kingdom era. So a lot of people talk about how things were, how, how great karate was in the 1950s. Yeah, I want to know what it looked like in the 1850s and the 1750s. Yeah, that that's to me that's far more interesting than the 1950s. Anyway, I think you know there, there's but, so uh, much information from that era available that I think we've kind of we've bled that era to death. Really, do you know what I mean? The, the early JKA days and this that the, yeah. the 200 years before that is far more interesting because we just there's just not as much information. Uh, there is some information coming to light. Mm. Uh, if you can, if you haven't read it yet, and you can find a book called uh, "The Okinawan Samurai" by Andreas Quest. No, I haven't read that, but yeah, I'll, I'll look into it, that. It is a uh, it's a translation of a couple of letters written by an Okinawan samurai, for lack of a better word, right, a paging to his son on how to get ahead in life as a member of that class and is from the mid 1700s oh wow okay and in there there's not a whole lot about martial arts but what there is in there about martial arts is very eye-opening yeah. in that he told his son to practice his japanese swordsmanship jigendu and he tells his son that if you practice jigendu for an hour a day you know x number of days a week then you don't need jujitsu and karate or something That's interesting that yeah uh so it kind of flies into the face of the the creation legend of karate that it was invented by farmers who had to defend their daughters from the marauding Japanese evil samurai from Satsuma. Yeah. No, the guys who invented karate <laughs> were learning the the samurai martial arts from the Satsuma guys. Uh, Funakoshi wrote about Azato that his his house yeah. was like a training facility for a lot of the the Koryu. Japanese arts yeah. and archery uh, you look and at, swordsmanship. Look at who Asato's main karate teacher was, uh, Masumura yeah. Sokon. Masumura, yeah. And Masumura Sokon, we know from uh, 
a guy named Yoshimura Chogi, uh, who was the son of the guy who got Higo Nakanyo passage to China in the late 1860s or early 1870s. Anyway, so he said he studied with Bushi Masumura, and in addition to karate kata, he also learned the use of the six-foot staff mm-hmm. and the use of the Japanese sword. Oh, gotta... <laughs> Sorry, that's my uh, cat Yamaguchi Gogen, the cat. No, that's not her name. But oh, I was going to say because that's a really cool name for a cat. If it was no, nice, my my <laughs> wife would kill me if I named her that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. But uh. So uh, we can kind of deduce from Asato's swordsmanship uh, that Funakoshi tells us was Jigendu based mm-hmm. in one of his books or one of his articles. Uh, and this guy who said, yeah, I actually learned sword from Masamura, that Masamura was not only teaching, you know, Goju Shiho and Kusanku and all of these other kata, mm. but he was also teaching Jigendu. Yeah. Now, Masamura was alive, uh, active in the 1800s. The letter I just talked about was from 100 years before that. Yeah. And the guy says that he learned Jigendu from his grandfather, who learned it from another Okinawan. So we can deduce that probably even by the late 1600s, there were Okinawan people of high enough skill level that they could actually teach Jigendu within mm. Okinawa. So, uh, and this is just coming to light in the past several years. Yeah. This is the thing. And, you know, uh, what, I, what I imagine happened, and I don't have any evidence for this yet, I'm still looking for it, is that after the invasion of Okinawa in 1609, the Satsuma took over and the Okinawans acquiesced. Uh, and then the Satsuma regiment of, I think it was 3,000 soldiers that invaded Okinawa, they're not all going to stay in Okinawa, right? So uh, they're going to have to go back. But they're still going to have to protect their newly acquired land from outside marauders such as Chinese and Japanese pirates. Right? Yeah. I think it happened is when they reconstituted the Okinawan self-defense force, not a standing army, is that the Satsuma taught them battlefield martial arts and that this filtered down through uh, the Peijing class of people who were involved in that particular aspect of, you know, national defense. Uh, And because we have this, uh, influence this early influence of the japanese martial arts i'm not convinced that it did not affect the development of karate in one way or another no i think i I don't think that karate is pure kung fu which is what everybody's trying to tell you so yeah 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 Yeah. no i think like we've we've said before there's so many and i think it was patrick mccarthy that said there's so many different influences that you just can't point to a single source a single origin for it I think yeah. he said, he said, certainly somebody has said that it's one of the first major melting pots. Yeah. You know, it's already a melting yeah, pot. Yeah. Any, any sense now of someone saying you mustn't cross train yeah. is, is misunderstanding the very root and fundamental part of karate is that it's already a tremendous melting pot of different skills. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Funakoshi himself had two main teachers and then he learned some stuff from a couple of other guys too. Yeah. Including his father's bojutsu tradition. 
his father was a Bojutsu master. See, I didn't know that. You know, That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think he says in his autobiography. Oh, okay. I've read yeah. that as well. That's poor. Maybe I need to reread yeah. it. <laughs> I, I think it was there. It may have been in the other book. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, but of course, was, he also said that his father was a, a, a drunkard and he squandered his family fortune. Okay. Or was it his grandfather? Yeah. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> And then later on in the book, he says, and I have never touched a drop of alcohol in my life. Uh, and I'm like, dude, you're Okinawan. I don't believe you. And uh, <laughs> second, uh, here's something that doesn't get uh, enough press. Uh, during one of his trips back to Okinawa, uh, Funakoshi Sensei apparently got drunk off his rocker and started dancing on the tables, according to his nephew who watched it happen. Yeah, that's this is the kind of stories you don't hear passed down through yeah. teachers or students, isn't it? Yeah, I like him much better now. <laughs> yeah, see, I think I do think things like that they 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 do humanize those those characters more. You kind of you put them all on a pedestal, don't yeah. you, and think that they're these yeah. kind of almost godlike teachers. But you know, yeah. you're hearing stuff like that. It, it does bring them down, not to our level, yeah. but you can relate to them a lot more. I think. Yeah, I mean. Uh... If you look at the era in which these guys are growing up, it was considered commonplace to go out to the red light district and have a good time. Yeah. That's yeah. just what happened. It, mm. it, you know, it's not the, uh, the ideal image of the, the Mr. Miyagi type karate master, right? Uh, that we have somehow ingrained in our mind from movies like the karate kid and mm. you know, the, the ancient, uh, master on the mountain with the long flowing white beard who teaches you the yeah. ancient uh, snake, tiger, and crane techniques so they can go back and defeat your father's killer uh, from the <laughs> old Hong Kong kung fu movies. Yeah, every Hong Kong kung fu movie ever made. <laughs> yeah. Or the, the, what is it from Kill Bill? The five Kill Bill, five palm, five finger palm of Palm strike exploding, heart exploding, exploding heart technique. Yeah. That's right, <laughs> yeah. that's the one. I want to learn that. Yeah, I'll yeah. teach it to you, Sue. I've never taught it to anyone. It's my personal secret technique. As an American, we have something similar, but it's more of a uh, a no-touch uh, exploding... Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> exploding heart technique. You know, yeah. five shots center mass. <laughs> but, uh, <no. laughs> oh, okay. I mean, I, I, was gonna, I thought you were going down the no-touch knockout type thing then. No, 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 no. <laughs> As a joke. As a joke, not genuinely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it is a no-touch knockout, right? You only is, need yeah. one finger. Yeah, no-touch kill. <laughs> one finger, and you can do it from 10 meters away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was a Five shot center match. Yeah, so. Anyway, uh, that was a tension. Uh, not, not to get too far off, but uh, a friend of mine uh, said to me, recently that there are only three martial arts movies in the world. One is uh, the uh, the revenge movie, right? So we mm. see that, uh, you know, where you have to go learn the martial arts, the old ways of the martial arts to, yeah. uh, right? Like, wait, no, there's only two. There's the revenge one, which includes like buddy cop movies where one gets killed and the other one has to go and be Steven Seagal in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uses martial arts to kill the mafia. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other one is uh, an evil crime lord holds a 
uh, a deathmatch martial arts tournament on an obscure island somewhere. They're the only That's two very, martial arts piece plots in the yeah. world, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. uh, well, of course, uh, one of the subplots is uh, the bullied kid who has to learn the old ways and defend the girl or get the girl in the end. You know, Ralph Macchio. Yeah, I mean, you could still but, kind but of that's, say there's revenge in there as well, though. Yeah, for, revenge. For the there's the revenge and the tournament. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's <laughs> first of its kind. Yeah. By the way, this is changing the subject completely. <laughs> Cobra Kai, Sue. Netflix yes. is coming. Is it really? Season three. Have you watched Cobra Kai, Joe? Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. I love <laughs> it. Season three is coming to Netflix soon. So everyone Ooh. out there. Get ready, because I can't wait. Cobra Kai, never die. Yeah. <laughs> now that I've got a black gi, I'm tempted to put a cobra on the back. <laughs> Go for it. And, I and, and, and uh, below that, you should, uh, you should get it embroidered. Cobra Kai, sweeping legs since 1984. Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. I'm going to do that. You wait, Sue. I'm going to rock as soon as As soon as this... Covid things over. I'm going to rock up in a black gi with that okay. on the back. Cobra yeah. on the back. And you won't notice, but we'll all pin a notice underneath it saying "sad, sad person." No. <laughs> and then I'll sweep the leg. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we did go off on a tangent there, but it's all good. Yeah. It's what we do. Yeah. It's good. Well, Cobra Kai's been good, hasn't it? People are loving it. It's brought it. It's brought it all back up again. Yeah. It has. It's kind of yeah. It's it's kind of uh It's brought something back to the kind of the luster of karate again. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm. nice. Yeah. While right. we're on the subject, then Joe, we'll come. We'll come back into all the other things. But while we're here, we always ask yep. everyone about their movie choices. So oh, we do, um, yeah. while we're thinking about, you know, we're on the subject of movies. So either favorite martial arts movie and another movie, or just favorite movie. And or, or multiple, whichever. Gotta go with the Lone Wolf and Cub movie series from the 1970s. Okay. Uh, I wasn't expecting that. If you're not uh, familiar with it, it's a based on a an old Japanese comic book series that ran for like years and years and years, and it's about a guy who was the Shogun's official executioner who got framed for a crime that he didn't commit mm-hmm. and his family and his, his uh, retainers were all slaughtered and he vowed revenge. And it's just about him going and kicking ass with his sword, uh, with his kid in to, tow, his three-year-old kid in tow. Can, yeah. you, can you say the name of that again? I didn't catch it. Yeah. The Lone Wolf and Cub series. The Lone Wolf of, Cub series. Okay. Yeah. But the movie versions from the 1970s, starring a guy named Wakayama, Tomi Saburo. This guy was like a fifth or sixth done in Iaido, you know, the, mm-hmm. the art of sword drawing and cutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he lends an air of credence to the actual yeah. fight scenes. Yeah. Rather than an actor who learns some sword and some fancy uh, acrobatics, yeah. he actually knew how to handle a sword. And it's oh, awesome. I'm going to watch these. Yeah. That sounds. Thank you for that recommendation. Everyone else, yeah. if, if I, I've heard of it actually, if the name rings a bell, but I've never, yeah, I've never watched it. Okay, I know all them. So you have like a lone wolf and cub, uh, baby cart on the river sticks. 
STYXX, right? Sticks, uh, like right. The, the the river in Greek mythology across when you die. That's where the ferry man takes you, isn't it? Yeah. So you have like, uh, you know, baby cart to hell, things like this are like the, the uh, things because the whole thing is he vows to become a demon of revenge. And so like all of the mm-hmm. imagery is about uh, like Japanese hell and demon and like the Buddhist concept of hell mm-hmm. and all of that. And when did you say and this was made in the 70s? In the 70s. There were like six yeah. of them. It sounds like that sounds like why Netflix hasn't made an, a, an update original series, like a horror slash series about this guy on a demonic trip for revenge. Yeah. That sounds like everyone would love that. Uh, have you ever seen the, the Tom Hanks movie Road to Perdition? No. Where he's a, a mafia hitman? No. No. It's basically the same story, but set okay. in like 1920s uh, mobland. So if you want to kind of get a feel for the story, uh, that's a good one. Uh, if you can't find the, the Japanese originals, that's a good one to start with. Mm. Uh, there was a terribly dubbed English version that combined a couple of the movies into one, and it was called Shogun's Assassin. Okay. But, but uh, it changed I... the story dynamics, so it didn't really have the same uh, sense of despair. Yeah, I guess you want to say that you get in like uh, a movie about an anti-hero on a quest for revenge. Mm. But yeah, it's uh, it's they're basically 1970s Japanese grindhouse flicks. Okay, it's something that Tarantino would make, right? Yeah, or a remake. Uh, so a lot of Japanese movies from that era were like like uh, samurai exploitation films like this. So. Mm. But uh, yeah, uh, favorite martial arts movie series in the world is that. Okay, uh, I'm yep. gonna check that out for sure. And if you want a a, a newer movie, uh, check out the movie called Karate Kill. Okay, it was made in like 2016, but it's a throwback to the old 1970s Sunny Chiba karate movies, okay. like the Street Fighter movies. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, that's also. A, a lot of fun. All right. Okay. There's two recommendations for everyone. To yeah. Check out. <laughs> okay. So like what, what do what do people usually say? Do they say like a uh, drunken master and we, we literally just did a whole podcast yeah. on drunken master. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, that was because that was um, that I actually decided to try and watch a proper martial arts movie because I've not not ever really got into the genre. So that was yeah. my entry point, and it was an excellent. Was it Drunken Master point. One or Two? One. 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 Okay, yeah. I love it. I think yeah. it's great. That was a lot of fun. Film. Yeah. 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 But no, no, we've had a, a real um, mixture. Um, Crouching Tiger. Yeah. And, okay. Um, the Karate Kid. Uh, well, of course, you got Blood like the... sport. Yeah, Blood sport. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Frank Deuce. So... Frank Deuce. The Belgian American ninja, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, completely real. Everything he said, by the way. Absolutely. Everyone, you know, no lies there at all. Yeah. It's all true. Okay. It was. It's a fun movie. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a nice, you know, something you just sit back with a couple of beers and watch with, you mm. know, for friends and. Have a good laugh, but uh, yeah, historically, I don't don't think it's yeah. that accurate somehow. 
Okay, if you want a good movie that has a bit of a mar- of a martial arts theme, check out a movie called The Kentucky Fried Movie. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with the the uh, Police Academy series and the yeah uh, the yeah. airplane series? You know, Leslie Nielsen stuff. <gasps> it's it's yeah. along those lines. But okay. one of the major subplots of the the entire movie is a a complete and total ripoff of Enter the Dragon. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, Kentucky that sounds great. So it's, it's, it's got from the, the symphony, so a lot of the comedy is very crass. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, but that's what Airplane was like, isn't it? Yeah. yeah that's... Have you seen Airplane, Greg? Sure. Surely you jest. I... <laughs> I'm not jesting, and don't call me Shirley. Call me Shirley. I've seen it a long, long time ago. <laughs> and I know, didn't I swear they, didn't they remake it as well? It has some sequels. I think, to Greg, it. you can just sit this out. Greg, Joe and I will just talk. We'll just swap That's all fine. the lines for a minute. Carry on. Guy comes and meet his friend at the airport. Hi, Jack. And the police tackling. The guy's name, his name is Jack. And he says, Hi, Jack. And then it zooms to a, a thing that says, Hijackers will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So that kind of humor. Okay. And some, you know, some, uh, yeah, it's a Kentucky Fried movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You give me, you give us a lot here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, def- I'm gonna look all these up and I'm gonna try and find them. Yeah. And then uh, we'll come, we'll come back in a while and we'll, we'll, we'll review them with you. We'll give you our opinions. All right. Another time, yeah. Yeah. How did we cool. get onto movies, by the way? I have no because idea. You, because you talked about, you were talking about um, films beforehand, so I asked Joe what his favourites were. No, yeah, I, I can't remember how we got on even talking about movies, Joe. Can you? I, I'm I'm not sure. No, uh, I, got lost, I got lost in that conversation. There was something about there was something about the. Uh, oh yeah, karate masters getting drunk in the red light district. There we go. Led into us saying something about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they were no Mr. Miyagi, mm. and then it was just all downhill from there. <laughs> I feel like someone needs to make yeah. a film about a karate master in that time, like or a series about yeah. you know a, a motorbike chokey type who wasn't your traditional on yeah. film karate master. I think that would do well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Gets up in the morning, sobers up, mm. <laughs> hits the makiwara <laughs> for a bit, then goes drinks again, and yeah. Then he hits the living makiwara, otherwise yeah. known as. A- <laughs> Some tough looking dude who's just standing there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He meditates yeah. a lot, but only because he actually can't stand up for several yeah. hours yeah. of the day. <laughs> I think we, I mean, Hollywood, come and hit, hit all three of us up. We'll, we'll pitch you it. We'll I, I don't know. I feel like it's more of a Netflix special Netflix, than, a, than yeah. a Hollywood type of thing. It's a bit more experimental. I think definitely Netflix. 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 If, Netflix. if we want to do it right, it has Netflix. to be done. With all Okinawan actors speaking Okinawan dialect, with Japanese oh, yes. subtitles down the side and English subtitles at the bottom. Perfect. And don't hire, don't hire, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chinese actors to play Japanese characters and vice versa. Uh, it's got to be all done locally, and uh, we have to have a, a a kind of a consortium of people who do the the fight choreography. We have to oh, get Patrick McCarthy yeah. involved. Yeah, it needs to be uh, real. James. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, if you you'll obviously need to be executive producer, Joe, because you know all of this. We don't, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> we also need the money to show up. So anyone who's listening got a spare million bucks, you know, well, do let's, give me a let's, call. Let's uh, let's let's set up a Kickstarter. That's what everyone does nowadays, isn't it? Go fund yeah. me or a Kickstarter. You up for that, we'll Joe? You'll be our executive producer, yeah. Absolutely. The Aaron spelling. <laughs> here's what i'll do here's what i'll do i'll even put in a cameo appearance as a drunken uh sailor from a whaling ship yeah and your, your credit will be character. strange looking your your credit will be strange looking white guy lives in tokyo yeah, yeah? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see genuinely i think i would watch that series i'd watch the hell out of that series yeah let's write it that? let's write it we let's can do, do that all right okay <laughs> I was actually thinking of something similar in making like a, the story, the backstory of Mr. Miyagi Ooh, and doing it all yes. in Okinawa when he was growing up. Right? I'd love that. I'm surprised yeah. they haven't done that in the era of, yeah. of, of sequels, reboots, prequels. Like you'd think that would be something they would do. Yeah. I, I would have rather watched that than the Jackie Chan remake. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just me. Yeah. No, no, no. The Jackie Chan remake was horrendous. Let's yeah. let's say it how it is. <laughs> it wasn't great. I love Jackie Chan, but Jesus, that was not yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, he is better in Drunken Master. Yes, One he and was. Two. And Rush Hour. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. See, now you're gonna go, you're gonna have me thinking about that prequel. I, I like that idea. <laughs> well, maybe Netflix will do it now. They've they finished Cobra Kai season three, and that's what they'll do. Yeah, it's the only logical explanation because uh, they're obviously going to listen to this podcast. I'm going to send it to them, so damn right they will. <laughs> no, we'll need to write Netflix. it. We'll need to. We'll need to write it for them. Okay. Yeah. We can on. do that. Yeah. yeah. And then get it translated in Okinawan. That's your job, Joe. Uh, then find some <laughs> Okinawan actors. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we're going to have to give them a, a year where all they do is train. Right. Yeah. Uh, train and learn their lines. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, six months. Yeah. If you're training, you know, full time, six months is enough to really learn karate to be, you know, it doesn't take a lifetime to to no. learn karate. It takes a lifetime to master it. Yeah. But not really yeah. to learn it. Right. Yeah. I don't think it's it's not a. Was it? it's not rocket surgery as they say. Right? We've said we've had this discussion before, haven't we? The idea that you know you need to yeah. take forty years to to learn something is is crazy. You know, you yeah. pick up some basics and then you spend the rest of the time. Yeah, I and mean, especially if it was ever well, especially if the martial arts themselves were ever a military endeavor. No military spends forty years on training a soldier. No. Oh God, no. Yeah. You do your boot camp. Then uh, if you move on, you get some additional training if you're going to become an officer or uh, you go into the special forces or whatever. Mm. But, yeah, your basic training doesn't last 40 years. No. So. But then that's full immersion, isn't it? Right. I don't know. I wonder, can what would that be like if, if people went to do – sorry, I'm going to show my ignorance now. Are there camps where you can actually go and do karate like, nonstop for weeks on end? Or is that just weekend seminars? Is that nearest we've got to it? Uh, professional fighters just mm. professionals just professionals yeah. yeah yeah uh professional teachers are probably teaching full-time all day every day day in and day out if that's all they do right 
but uh, I don't think that there's the equivalent of uh, an army boot camp for martial arts unless you're a professional fighter mm. or you're actually in the army. Yeah. Uh, mm. But then most of it, you it's uh, spent on marksmanship and uh, physical endurance, not mm. hand-to-hand fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the uh, that's why I think uh, Uechidu is a perfect example. If you train Uechidu, uh, karate mm-hmm. within six months you'll be a formidable fighter in many different arenas you won't be a master by any anything but you'll have the you'll be tough as nails you'll know how to hit kick kick and hit really hard with penetration mm-hmm. uh, just because of the the intensity of the initial training mm. and uh you, you won't know any kata you'll know one kata like, you'll know Sanchim. Mm. And then you'll know how to fight. And you'll yeah. know how to take a lot of a lot of hits. Yeah. It's not optimal, of course, but... Uh, no, it's, it depends on what your goal is at the end of the day, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. If you want six months to become pretty formidable, then yeah, there's, there's the option. Yeah. And uh, they say, Uechidu used, used to only have three kata. Sanchim, Seisan, and Sanseidu. Then in the 1950s, when Okinawan martial arts school started putting on like public demonstrations and all that, you know, after the war and, and things, the economy got back a little bit under the U.S. military. The Weichi guys were like, hey, we only have three forms and then we break some stuff. So our demonstrations don't last an hour like the Goju guys do. Listen, yeah. five more kata. So they made five kata and the uh, emphasis for creating them was so they would have more things for public exhibitions mm. and this is told by a guy named goodness what was it Tomoyose sensei who was a he was an oichi practitioner from that era mm. and he was interviewed uh when he went to the u.s he spoke perfect english too so i've heard him say this on the interview like the old the old tape of the interview said yeah, we didn't have enough kata, so we made five more. That's interesting. It, it flies in the face of, you know, um, a lot of the stuff we believe about kata. I think, you know, Patrick was saying some of the same things about where some kata come from. And, you know, some of it yeah. is just that, is we need a new one. Make one, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not kind of, this was passed down from teacher to student through the years. It's like, no, we need more. We need to look better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, in some of the competitive side of things, the JKF is notorious for hijacking kata that already exist and mm. then completely rearranging them for the sake of competition. Yeah, yeah. Chatan Yaraku Sanku is a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I don't yeah. know that kata personally, but I like. Yeah. My first introduction to it was watching. Um, what's her name? Uh, I can't remember her name, Rika Usami uh, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Usami, yeah. Perform yeah. it. Um, that was yeah. my first introduction to it. And since yeah. then, looking at, you know, non-competition videos, you can see the differences and you can see that it's, yeah, yeah it's almost just a completely different kata at the end of the day. Yeah. But they just kept the old name. Yeah. Yeah. See, so anyway, that, yeah, uh, that's a kata that does interest me actually, because you know the the the, the tale of Kusanku that we know 
through, um, you know, I'd say modern karate is, is you know, Sakagawa learned it from Kisanku and passed it to Matsumura, who passed it to Itosu and Funakoshi, yeah. etc. But then you look at the name, the, the Chatanyara name is something that goes back hundreds of years before that, no? Or am I uh, wrong in thinking that? A guy who we think may have been the inspiration for the name of the kata mm. came to Okinawa in 1756. Okay. Uh, Sakugawa wasn't born until like the late 1700s. Yeah. So the 1733 date for his birth uh, would have allowed him to study with this guy, but, uh, you know, more like genealogy uh, studies and records, you know, show that, you know, he was born a lot later. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, interestingly enough, the record of Kusanku doing or the guy who Kusanku is named after mm. doing a martial arts demonstration uh, says that he showed wrestling techniques. Yeah. He didn't even show punching and kicking really. Mm. He did like a, like a, you know, a, a foot sweep or something. Yeah. Or, you know, something along those lines. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how, where do you get from that, that to, you know, this entire kata? Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean that he didn't teach people his kata, but the record doesn't say anything about him teaching Okinawans. Mm. It said he came and demonstrated some wrestling techniques with a couple of his students. And I would imagine the 1756 uh, date that we have, uh, because it was recorded in 1762, when a tribute ship from Okinawa got blown off course on the yeah. way to Satsuma. And landed mm -hmm. on another province, and like the the Confucian scholar from the province went out and interviewed all these guys, uh, and he did. And uh, one one of the paragraphs in there was about a Chinese guy who came and did some wrestling moves for us mm. a few years ago, is how it was put. So 1756, we know there was a, a Chinese envoy that came to Okinawa to coronate the new king. Because that's just what they did. Mm. Uh, Chinese sent envoys to their tributary states when a new leader was put in place. And they were there to officially recognize as China the new leader. So now when these guys come, they come across the ocean from Fujian to Okinawa. Uh, and between there, you have things like pirates. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, like the Japanese Jack Sparrow, right? Uh, <laughs> another one for netflix yeah uh you know that you have to defend against and obviously they're gonna send some bodyguards with the envoy in addition to like scribes and and all of these other like servants and stuff right so mm. uh and the most logical explanation is that this kusanku guy was a military attache or mm. a bodyguard or some kind of soldier and he showed some wrestling moves to the Okinawan guards of the castle. Right. Uh, which is really where I think the Chinese influence in karate probably came from in the early days was yeah. soldiers talking to other soldiers and exchanging moves and techniques mm. and maybe a couple of forms here and there. Yeah.
when you get to the late 18, uh, 1800s and onward, of course, uh, the Chinese, the uh, Qing dynasty is on its way out, right? Uh, Japan is under upheaval from the Meiji Restoration. And so when you have Okinawans running away to China in the late 1800s, they weren't going as government officials. They were going to avoid conscription in the Japanese army and to try and get China's help to uh, to prevent Japan from taking over politically uh, the islands of Okinawa. Mm. It didn't happen. It didn't work. But when they went over there, uh, they probably had contacts with Okinawans slash Chinese people who were already over there. And they had some remnants of the Chinese military martial arts that they were kind of turning into a civilian self-defense practice. And so when you have guys like Uechi Kanbun and Higao Nakandyo going over to China, they probably didn't have access to the military guys, but they had access to the remnants of them through the civilians that were still around. Yeah. When I say still around, at the the Ryukyukan, which was a kind of like, like an embassy, almost, right? So you had government offices, you had a warehouse for tributary treasures, dormitory. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Okinawans going to China on official business. And a legend says that there's an Okinawan family that actually had a martial arts dojo on the premises where they hired the the security guards of the compound to teach them martial arts. And the remnants of that military martial art, you know, military wrestling or whatever you want to call it, uh, was left over and was being taught by the Okinawans who were still there in late the late 1800s. That's interesting. Now, here's something that's going to throw a monkey wrench into the uh, Okinawans going to China and learning from the, the long, white-bearded master on the mountain. Okay. The Ryukyukan was located outside of the main city gates for obvious security purposes. Hmm as were all of the embassies of foreign nations in Fujian at that time. Here's another thing. If you were over there on official business, you had a curfew of sundown. You had to be back by sundown. Mm. And here's the other thing. If you're over there on official business, you're a government worker. You're working seven days a week. Mm. When do you go out and find your master on the mountain? Yeah. Right. Oh, and you also don't speak Chinese. Hmm. Yeah, that does. Uh, yeah, it, it does it kind does of go against what you cut the, the kind of the typical romanticized yeah. history of karate, doesn't it? Yeah, but of course, uh, I would imagine that the the initial the early guys learning uh, martial arts forms and moves from military guys meant that it was more pragmatic than your civilian white crane boxing that is all about qigong, not all about mm. qigong, but yeah. has a lot of extra non-combative things added in mm. during peaceful times that the military systems wouldn't have had. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. So, of course, as a, as a cultural asset, the peacetime martial arts are probably of higher value than the military martial arts because they have time to develop develop as a culture during times of peace 
I mean, you look at the Japanese Koryu arts, uh, a lot of the uh, certification uh, type of aspects and a lot of the uh, melding with the quasi-religious aspects and quasi-political aspects that you have in the Japanese Koryu arts mm. didn't really start until after the Battle of Sekigahara and the nation became unified and peaceful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it has time to flourish as a kind of cultural asset rather than just being something that you learn for a, a month before you go to battle. Yeah. And what you learn for a month to go to battle is how to whack somebody over the head with a four, you know, four meter long spear mm. and maybe sad them with your sword if your spear breaks. <laughs> right. There's uh, something interesting. I was reading a, a biography of Miyamoto Musashi. Mm-hmm. by a guy who traced all of the old stories through the novel and all, all of the oral traditions to try and paint a picture of Musashi. He said in there, during the Warring States period, you know, the period of uh, civil war through Japan, throughout Japan mm-hmm. that ended in 1600 with Sekigahara. There are a few skirmishes afterwards, but by all, for all intents and purposes, by the 1650s, there was no more samurai battle. Mm. at all right but uh and they became bureaucrats but uh and then they write books about oh i wish that we could go back to the old days so i can you know cut my stomach open you know on sundays and tuesdays like everybody else did you know know, pining for pining for the good old days that probably never even existed anyway Mm. during the warring states period (laughs) uh this guy said that the consensus amongst historians who like studied this thing Uh, was that the practice of martial arts was looked down upon by the upper echelon of the military as something for foot soldiers. And if you're a general, you don't need to waste your time learning martial arts. Hmm. And then come Hmm. peaceful times and the martial arts become this whole big identity of the class of people who would have been aspiring to become generals and look down upon it, you know, a hundred years before. Mm. So uh, I do think that peacetime does allow for a lot of uh, flourishing of martial arts as a cultural aspect at the expense of some of the pragmatic parts, probably. Mm. Uh, but a lot of the cultural aspect has nothing to do with the combatives. Yeah. I mean, you still see that, don't you? A lot that, you know, the cultural stuff yeah. does overtake the combative stuff which yeah. we've talked about a I lot, mean, even still today yeah. ha- having a certificate having a certificate from the head of the style doesn't mean that you're going to survive on the battlefield oh god yeah 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 right uh and the uh the kata the idea of kata uh in at least in the koryu arts is with a few exceptions it's always two person forms right Mm. so you're always doing a sword versus a sword form or a sword versus a spear or a halberd versus a a spear or whatever right and you go through the forms and they're pretty lengthy actually uh and but they tell their the form itself is not the the combative the form is showing the body movement and the angle of insertion of the weapon 
that you need to have for maximum efficiency in combat. Mm. And in the form, the guy kind of, he blocks your, your sword. But in reality, you're cutting in into his neck or cutting up under his armor here, right? And the block, the block is there so that you can get full swing on the thing and actually hit something. Because mm. if you hit him with a wooden sword in practice, you're going to break his collarbone and mm. he's going to be out for six months, right? Yeah. So it was put there so you could, it was like, a, you know, like a, a punching mid, right? So you get full impact and you can move on to the next technique, which is supposed to show you what happens if this blow misses, what's your next move? Yeah. So, uh, if we look at, uh, we didn't go deep into it, but the uh, the entire uh, Japanese martial culture influence on the Ryukyu Kingdom, mm. at least since the mid-1600s, probably even a lot earlier, uh, to me would speak to the potential that, potential that karate kata were formed in such uh, or were formed in a similar manner mm. that you have your your initial clash bang right i.e the guy tries to kill you and then you do something to defend yourself mm-hmm. and then you are beating the heck out of him through the rest of the kata with all of the turns and everything representing throws and everything yeah. where each and every move should be a killing blow yeah or a killing throw or something right yeah rather than rather than a a series of random self-defense techniques strung together yeah which seems to be more of the chinese model yeah so i'm not sure which one at this point in time would be uh the more prominent idea of kata in the Ryukyu kingdom era of karate mm-hmm. would it be based more on the japanese which is if i can go off on a completely new tangent mm, is kind of a a uh how'd you put this kind of tribal storytelling in a way yeah nice so a story has an introduction right it's got uh your turning points it's got your climax it's got your conclusion right so your introduction to the story of kata is the initial onslaught mm-hmm. the initial attack and the guy is not trying to punch you in the face he's trying to kill you in in martial arts uh so it, if he's grabbing your wrist it's because his other hand is already plunging his short sword into your ribcage right and he's grabbing your wrist so you can't defend against it mm. he's not grabbing your wrist just to be you know a tough guy mm. so uh your initial onslaught bang then you have your uh turning point which is where you turn the tables on him mm-hmm. and you do your counter attack and then you climax well, probably several turning points throughout the kata, the new climax, and at the end, you know, you finish with like a big throwing move that like cracks his neck, and you're done. Yeah, you know, like these at the end of the goju kata. And all yeah. That. Uh, and if you look at the the swords, the sword, you have your your initial onslaught, which is you're facing the guy in battle or on the street or wherever it is, and he attacks you, and you do your evasion and you cut. And you miss, and then you go through the entire kata, and you finish with a big slash at the end. So it's really a kind of a story in one aspect, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the kata. And if you look at if you look at uh, any other human movement endeavor, dance, 
is originally not well some forms of dance originally tribal storytelling mm. and the moves are in a specific order for a specific reason yeah because you're telling the story of, of a battle and then when you translate that into interpersonal combat each and every move in that kata or in that form or in that dance should be enough to at least allow you to get the guy off you for a second so that you can knock him down with the next blow right yeah uh, yeah, we've done so, drills like that, haven't we, Sue? I mean, I think we we often um, you know create application yeah. kata drills in that kind of scenario. Here's the first move. Oh, that hasn't worked, or he's he's managed to block. He's managed to escape. The next sequence will show you how to yeah you know get past that. Oh, but they've countered this one, and then you just work your way through. I think that it does make sense, and it allows you to practice the yeah. whole thing and get yeah. you. It's like Patrick McCarthy's flow drills. I like like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. It lets you it lets you try it out. And it's also when you then when you practice it in that loose way in class, especially as we talked about the other week, when you're practicing it against lots of different people, sizes, speeds and everything, it, it gives it a lot more life. Yeah. You know, you can see how one move would go wrong if your opponent's yeah. six foot two and you could yeah. or you might see how it would go wrong. If opponent is your own height or what have you, because it's, mm -hmm. so you see yeah. that it can go wrong. But the next move might work really well in that situation yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i think that the uh, the other aspect of kata that uh, doesn't get enough attention uh, because uh martial arts have really becoming about the art part is that kata should not have personal interpretations in the movements kata is kata yes okay. does that make sense so the kata should the kata when they say don't change the kata they say don't do things that the kata is not showing you to do I don't think that mm. they're saying don't change a nuki to a fist if the guy is, you know, five inches closer or whatever. They're saying that don't uh, don't do something that the kata is not showing you to do. So you you don't you don't alter the kata to your body. You have to alter your body so that it fits inside of the kata. And that's 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 a very Japanese. Uh, way of looking at kata in my experience because it's uh it's trying to drill out of you bad habits that will get you killed and trying yeah. to force your body to do the the movement as it was meant to be done because that's the way that is going to keep you alive makes sense yeah yes. absolutely i think yeah. the way the way you kind of the way you think of it like a, a recipe book or something you know you don't you don't just go in and change the recipe to your liking you know you they're there the yeah. ingredients are there for a reason and um, yeah. those proportions for a reason yeah. you don't say well yeah. i i like sugar i'm going to put an extra bag in this cake yeah it doesn't yeah. work like that <laughs> yeah and no baking soda and baking powder are not the same thing no <laughs> no less learned i mean the uh, the idea of changing kata i mean obviously we know kata has has changed over the years yeah. of course yeah um and I think, you know, I, well, like we've said, the idea of not changing kata, I think, is the ideal, but I don't think humans are good at idealistic things. No. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, no, that's fine. I was going to say, they, they, they've changed over the years. But I think now, I think we're so far removed from the original forms, or at least in Shotokan we are. I'm just speaking from, from my personal experience. Yeah. Um, I think now more people are. Not changing them again, 
but because they're kind of looking more into the application they're almost reverting back to what they might have been before yeah so they're looking at applications and go what well, the application i i know and teach is this so my solo form needs to reflect yeah. that for when i pass it to somebody else it doesn't need to reflect this um typical shirt can perfect aesthetic amazing looking long movement thing anymore it needs to reflect what might have looked like you know 100 years before that um, so, uh, i think the easiest thing would to be in that case instead of trying to uh, just going off the thing uh change it based on your application is mm. just to show it in you yeah 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 i mean it's yeah just it's easier said than done of course but mm. uh, yeah. Uh, no, especially I do, I do, the um, Itosu-based Shodindu and and the Shotokan have so many similarities because they're basically the same kata, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Your stances are a bit shorter. Yeah, I do. Some I do of your punches are to the head instead of the chest, but yeah. Yeah, I do look at a lot of the old Shorin-based forms just because it helps me understand yeah. them a lot better. And yeah. when I practice them, I, I don't mm -hmm. tend to do the Shotokan versions as much anymore, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Speak, so, so speaking of kata, another thing we always ask is favorite kata. Oh. What would be your? I mean, you can say in terms of solo performance, application bait, whichever, however you want to swing it. We'll leave that bit up favorite, to you. Favorite, favorite kata. How about the one that I love to hate? Okay. Naihanchi. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. My I love to hate. Kata. Yeah, I love to hate it because I can never do it right. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I I'm looking at Nayanchi not 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 from an aesthetic, but what part of your your core musculature are you supposed to be moving when you're doing that crossover step, right? Mm. And trying to get the the little the intricacies of the the precision of the movement down, and then do it as fast as possible, mm. well without losing any precision, which is to me what Nayanchi training was about. Uh, above and beyond, of course, you know, the application practices, but uh, the training itself. And the reason is, uh, the way it's explained to me anyway, was uh, the more precise you can move at full speed, the more chance you have of actually hitting the guy in actual combat. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Because yeah. if you're just doing like gross, you know, motor skill type punches versus those little things that allow you to get through the chinks in his armor and actually get to his throat with your nuki day. Mm. Uh, I think that the, the precision in the kata was about how to then use that precision in your kumite. When I say kumite, I don't mean like no, no, point no, spark. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, actual fighting. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and so when I'm doing naihanchi, you know, stance width, always 100% the same, right? Uh, weight distribution, always 50-50, no matter what you're doing. Even if one leg's in the air, you're still 50-50. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Uh, and then doing it as fast as possible without lose, losing the precision, which is why I hate it. Because it's it's so minimalist in its, mm. in its movement that it doesn't allow you to fake it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. with a long, flourishing kata like Goju Shiho, you can fake a lot of that, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, uh, I, 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 I love my Hanshi and Teki. I think yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's great. Is it Azuka 
the founder of Wado, in his, his book, he said that, that there's just something deep about that kata and it would take more than a lifetime to master. Yeah. And you can see I, why I, it's... I consider it to be the basics of karate. Mm. It should, in my opinion, it should be the first thing you learn. I've, yeah, I have thought that yeah. for a while, yeah. What, was it, is it true that it used to be that and Seisan may have been the, the early building blocks of, before the Pinans were created? Well, uh, Seisan is a bit of a kind of up in the air for me, mm. uh, just because, you know, we don't, the only system that uses it as its building block is the Shodin systems from Kian. Right. Right. Everywhere else is somewhere in the middle or at the end of the curriculum. Mm. In most of the iterations of the curriculum of those different systems. But it is in all of the major systems, right? It's in Goju, it's in Shorin, and it's in Weichi. Uh, but I'm not sure if it would be the oldest slash first form. Yeah. Or if Kion liked it better than Naihanchi, so he got rid of Naihanchi and just did Seisan first. But I would imagine, I don't think that Naihanchi is the oldest form either. Well, no I do really think knows, that somewhere, somewhere it was, it, somewhere along the line, was introduced, and it was probably whittled down to its bare essentials, yeah. which what gives it its minimalist uh, look, and used as the building block for uh, building the the karate body uh, that you would need for the actual fighting. Yeah, yeah. So to that, in that regard. Uh, after probably the, just going off, you know, oral tradition here, probably after the early 1800s, Naihanchi was the kihon. Yeah. Before that, it may have been, you did some sword, you did some spear, and you did kusanku. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think as a, a kind of a pedagogical, is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. I hope so. If not, James will correct me later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> methodology i think that uh probably post 1800s when it is rumored to have been introduced to okinawa uh was when it was whittled down and became the basics before the peons so about 100 Mm. years before the peons Mm. Uh, what's fascinating about naihanchi is the stance is uh Not the stance, the, the footwork being completely side to side gives it an additional dimension that you don't have in Japanese swordsmanship kata. Mm. Which I think makes it a perfect complement to learning sword, jigendu, and then your empty hand side to side with naihanchi. And then they meld together when you do basai and kusaku. Mm. As far as the, the movement patterns are concerned. Yeah, and and how it's all about, like I said, when you even when you lift your leg up for the nami gaishi, the way I learned it is you shouldn't be putting all of your weight on the other leg. Yeah, you should leave an imaginary leg on the ground that is supporting your your foot as it comes up. Yeah, and it's very difficult to explain. Uh, but when somebody does it right, you can see it. It's like that's what they meant. Mm. Right. Yeah, I, I've I've heard that described as that before. That's what you should do. I've never been able to yeah. do it. But... 
Yeah, it's a. Uh, uh, you need to uh, look at the uh, inner muscles of the core, and how they're utilized uh, to move the limbs. So, for example, if you want to lift your foot off the ground, uh, rather than using the big outer muscles of your thigh, you should be lifting with your psoas major muscle, which is uh, an inner muscle of the core mm-hmm. that connects uh, your the middle of your spine to your uh, your thigh bone, right? Uh, so focus on that to lift so that when you need to kick, you still have all of that energy in the big muscles of your thigh that you can transfer into the opponent rather than wasting some of that energy just to lift your leg. Mm-hmm. And uh, just using uh, or understanding the idea of lifting the foot without pushing off the ground. Well, once you push off the ground, your weight automatically shifts to the other foot anyway. Mm. They say that's not what you want because it's telegraphing your kick. Mm. It's telegraphing your moves and everything. So they want you to lift your foot about that far off the ground with your uh, psoas major muscle. And then use the muscles inside of your pelvis to kind of turn your knee outward so that your foot comes up yeah. into the Namidaishi position rather than using the outer muscles of your leg, which you want to reserve for when you have to kick the guy in the, in the head or whatever. Right? So uh, it's just a different way of understanding using the body. And mm-hmm. of course, I don't see Bushi Masumura saying, lift using your psoas major muscle and then no. <laughs> you know, turn your knee outward using these muscles and all that. Uh, but the the actual movement patterns, like the sudiyashi walking of the bushi, and you know just how you what you how you need to adjust your walking if you're used to carrying a sword in your hip and all of that uh, would have led to a uh, more of a uh, a natural way of understanding to use the core of your body for your initial tech, your issue movements than anything else. Mm. And recently I've been reading a book on no dancing, no theater by a former rugby player. Right. Okay. Who, who, you know, he learned, uh, you know, all of the Western sports medicine and everything. Uh, then he, he, you know, somehow got interested into no theater and now he's like a master dancer or something. Uh, but, he said that uh, the he commissioned, I think it was, some of these uh, sports scientists and movement, you know, uh, experts to like do a study on the the movement patterns of these eighty and ninety year old no theater masters, mm. and how they're still able to jump three feet in the air without pushing off the ground and without running to jump and all of that in the middle of their dance. And they said, oh, it's all core strength, inner muscle movement that's allowing them to do this. But they never explained that in the no tradition. And they never explained, they never give specific exercises that say this will isolate this muscle so that you can do this mm-hmm. move. But if you do it wrong, they hit you. <laughs> So you learn the hard way to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, somehow, somehow they were able to, without like actual scientific explanation and, and modern-based training, they were able to somehow, this ancient tradition, 
uh, isolate the inner muscles of the core, which modern sports technology is only beginning to understand in recent years mm. and, and use for maximizing performance. So anyway, uh, that's a bit of a, an aside. And as I mentioned earlier, no theater was always in the providence of, of the Bushi class, the samurai class. Yeah. Uh, until the Meiji Restoration. Uh, and, uh, you know, just why I looked at no and, and tea ceremony, all of that, uh, in a martial arts uh, research capacity is that these are movement patterns that you simply cannot sportify like you can with the martial arts mm. right the martial arts jujitsu kenjutsu karate jutsu you know kung fu taekwondo no matter their initial intentions they do lend themselves very easily to a competitive format yeah right. and so it's very easy to understand them through modern western sports medicine and sports science mm-hmm which means that it's probably a very high possibility that we lost the old movement patterns to these when it happened, but we still have other movement patterns done by the same class of people that does not lend itself to competition and sportification mm. that we can look to as guidance as to how to reconstruct the movement patterns of the kata. Yeah. To have a, a better or a more efficient way of getting your body into the position for the application practice. Yeah. Not more efficient, but a differently efficient. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying that modern sport, you know, martial arts are inefficient and all of that. That's not what I'm saying. But no. the, the, the cultural trappings of the people who invented this stuff. Yeah. lent itself to a different type of movement quality than we have mm-hmm. in the modern sports arena. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. And yeah. that's what I find fascinating about, you know, the, the, the mysterious oriental martial arts. Mm. There's nothing mysterious about it. We just didn't understand it. Yeah. And so we added all this hocus pocus. Right. I blame uh, Chinese medicine hawkers for some of the hocus pocus though, but yeah. <laughs> You want to sell somebody some snake oil. How do you get their attention? You break a spear with your throat first. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> then you get a crowd. Right? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or you wrap like like yeah. wire around your muscle and you flex and you break the wire. Mm-hmm. Right? Say, I did this because I take this snake oil every morning and it increases my chi. Right? There you go. Uh, uh, but but, but – uh, I think, unfortunately, we in the modern martial arts world or early modern martial arts world bought a lot of that stuff hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. And now we have the no-touch voodoo guys. Yeah. Yes, we do. Uh, who should have moved beyond that and said no because, you know, it doesn't work. Well, you know. Yeah. Who's to say the force isn't real? <laughs> Who's to say? Yeah. No, it's uh yeah, that no touch stuff is absolutely, absolutely but uh, I as an exercise, you know, sure why not? It's just good old fashioned qigong breathing exercises. Mm. Yeah. It is probably good for your health, but 
Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Just separated from the combatives. Yeah. That's all. I mean, Zen meditation is very good for you in both the sitting and stillness and everything. But hmm. And I do think it should be part and parcel of every martial artist's practice, but it has nothing to do with the combat side of things. Yeah. No, it doesn't. I just I I think it's um it's beneficial when it helps to calm you down and get a bit yeah. more centered and not panic. You know, it That's, contributes to the training yeah. of not panicking yeah. and right. controlling your breathing when you learn how to manage it. Yeah. Like you're learning how to manage your body. Yeah. Then it contributes. It's part of it, but yeah, it's, it's it, yeah. Uh yeah. what was it's it? You guys ever read uh Dave Grossman, US military psychologist, his uh field of study is how to train people to be killers and then how to bring them back into society after war. Oh, how interesting. No, I haven't. Uh, He's got two books out. One is called On Killing and the other one is called On Combat. I recommend On Combat because it's uh, the other one is more uh, like real actual military training stuff. On Combat is applicable to anybody who who, uh, has the the risk of facing physical violence in your daily life, which is basically everybody. Mm. Uh, and in there, one of the things he says that uh, the U.S. military has been teaching for many, many years, and it's also filtered through police training and everything, is if you feel your heart rate to go up, they have this thing that they call tactical breathing. And it's basically just, you know, it's a martial arts breathing exercise, basically. Not a combative breathing exercise, but uh, more to calm your nerves so Mm. that when you do need nerves of steel when you aim it's there and what you do is you inhale for four seconds through your nose Mm. hold for four seconds out through your mouth for four seconds and hold for four seconds lather rinse repeat Mm. as necessary yeah i've i've seen that many many times in the um in the sort of meditation world and and people share that a lot for anxiety for controlling anxiety yeah. attacks yeah yeah i think it's uh it's uh i think what it does is it, it slows down slows you down enough so that your sympathetic nerve system can kind of come back into focus uh for mm. the job at hand yeah yeah i taught it to one of my colleagues at work when she had to do like an hour long presentation in front of like 500 people here, try this. And uh, so I think in that respect, uh, the the Qigong exercises, uh, the meditative exercises are highly beneficial. Yeah, well, they, they must, think, have, you know, withstand yeah. the test of time for a reason. You know, just yeah. because you get a few crazy people yeah. thinking they can project their chi yeah. and knock out people. Doesn't, yeah, I don't think discounts the benefits of it. No, of course not. Yeah. Uh, we just need to separate that from the combatives so that you don't have the voodoo guys mm. or you don't fall into the trap of think, think, thinking that you can zap somebody with light, force lightning from, yeah. you know, 10 feet away. <laughs> we all know we that could. we can, but we just don't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. we just don't talk, we about don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, Sue, that was, a, that was a a discussion. That was a discussion. That was that so was interesting. Really interesting. interesting. Yeah, that was yeah. incredibly interesting. When does just, um yeah. talk about just just coming back to your book before we do finish up? Joe, oh. Is it is it done yeah. and released? Itosu. It's yes. on Amazon. Yep. Yeah. Yes. I find it on Amazon. Itosu Anko, Savior of a Cultural Heritage. 
Wonderful. People, yep. go and buy it's the got... book immediately. Yep. Got, uh, before we do, just want to leave you with one last thing. Mm-hmm. Please do. Uh, in that book, there's a lot of period of newspaper articles from the 1890s onward up to like the 1920s mm-hmm. uh, that I put. And a lot of what's in those articles flies in the face of what uh, we modern karate people learned about the history. Love it. Uh, you know, both in terms of, you know, Itosa wasn't the b- benevolent master on the hill. Mm. Uh, not only that, but, uh, you know, competition, Kumite was already around in Okinawa at least 11 years before Funakoshi even went to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there were two kinds of karate that were being talked about in the newspaper articles in the 1890s. Mm. One, if it was somehow connected to what was called the stubborn party in Okinawan politics, i.e., uh, we will call them the uh, the hard right wing mm-hmm. uh, types now, Nation- Okinawan nationalists who wanted to stay with China and not go to Japan. Mm-hmm. If karate was somehow mentioned in connection with these guys it was mentioned in a negative light if it was somehow mentioned in connection with like a japanese military parade or some kind of event for the uh the military garrison that was being stationed in okinawa it was uh, addressed in a very positive light Mm. so this whole thing of the japanese uh, imperial military co-opting karate to its uh, needs didn't start in the 1930s. It started in the 1890s, at least. Mm-hmm. So. so that was just one of the fascinating things that I found, like, going through these newspapers. I was like, whoa, mind blown. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's important to understand uh, the, even the, like the, the dark and murky sides of karate history. Absolutely. Because it's part and parcel of what we have to do. Yeah. And without Itoso Anko, we wouldn't be having this podcast. No, definitely not. He he literally is the savior of a cultural heritage, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Hate him or love him. Hate 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 what he did to karate. Love what he did to karate. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay, sorry to go off on that last tangent, but uh, no, 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 not at all. I was going to ask you actually if there was anything that you hadn't that we hadn't asked you about that you were dying to talk to us about. So you know, I can, if there isn't, so. then <laughs> <laughs> well, then you have to come on again and and do another. Well, there we go. We'll, 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 we'll leave it there. That if if you enjoyed this episode, then there will be a part two, three, four, all the way up to however many we can get out of you, Joe. <laughs> all right, uh, let's bring James in. We'll do later. We'll do a three-way call. Absolutely, yeah. I'd be definitely yeah. up for that. That'd be brilliant, yeah. That'd be we'll, we'll sort that Patrick out. McCarthy on, maybe we'll have a four-way. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we need, we need to day. clear the day. <laughs> we need a day. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> we have to bring because, snacks and yeah, everywhere. Snacks. <laughs> we'll do that, though. I yeah, tell definitely. you what, that would be proper fun. Yeah. If we did that, we could live stream it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah we could do that. We'll, we'll see if we can sort something out. For right, sure. Perfect. That's something for everyone to look forward to. We'll we'll keep everyone posted when that that happens. (laughs) I didn't mean to go on for two hours, but... uh, No, you're more than welcome. It's been interesting. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you for yours. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hope to talk to you soon and uh, 
Yep. Hopefully we can get up a, a like a live stream somewhere with definitely. Yeah. Bring in a bunch of guys. Yeah. Oh, that would be yeah, so much fun. Like a roundtable yeah. discussion. <gasps> yes. 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 Contra full of controversy, please. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Historical yeah. <laughs> fact that nobody knows. <laughs> we will we'll set that up. That would be so cool. Thank you, Joe. It's been Thank so you. nice to meet you. Nice to meeting you and uh, have yeah. a good day and yeah. you know where to find me if you need. Yeah. We do. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye.